This morning, we will be back in Proverbs chapter 29, slowly moving our way through. Now, let me kind of give you a recap, because last week goes right into uh, this week. In fact, it's kind of a um, pseudo-introduction for what we're going to talk about today. But you remember last week, we were in Proverbs 29, verses 14, 15, and 16, and we examined three really important verses that I told you would, would really help you with the Bible. There's a lot of material in that. And we talked about, first of all, verse 14, where it talked about establishing a throne. And I showed you, we went into some detail on that. And some of you had even came to me Thursday night that you were in studies of this. And I helped you with it, showing you <clears throat> that doctrinally that is dealing with the millennial reign of Christ in that verse. The righteous reign, which the Bible says in Revelation, is a reign of rod of iron. I showed you how the Bible will always take the premillennial approach to uh, the coming of Christ. And I took time to lay out for you the other two uh, viewpoints, which are totally inaccurate and really heresy. And then, you know, we go through this all the time, but we talked again about the theme of the Bible, which is a throne. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven being established when Christ comes back. And how important that really all the Bible just revolves around uh, those two aspects and it's the key to it. And all the key verses that I gave you last week that you need, you know, to make it work for you, to understand it. And then we kind of moved into the inspirational side of it. <clears throat> and we, we talked about God's throne, the righteous rule, uh, the reign uh, being established uh, in three ways in our lives as Christians. And, of course, the first one is establishing the rule and the reign of God in our hearts. The second one would be the establishment of the rule and the reign of God in our church. And, then of course, the third one was in our families. And I showed you how that the verses began with Christ's millennial reign, but then very obviously moved into dealing with our children in verse 15. And we keep coming through Proverbs, and you obviously see this over and over again, how it keeps popping up, uh, the importance of families. Uh, over and over again, the Bible spares no, no expense, uh, literally anyhow, of really talking about the importance of, of families. And I've showed you before how that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that was God's plan. When he called out Abraham, he called him because of Abraham would do what's right with his family. Because God planned for the nation of Israel to be built with families that would carry on uh, all that he wanted to do. And of course, spiritually in the New Testament, it's the same thing. And I gave you two key verses. Um, and I've also used this as for myself as a pastor. And, uh, you know, when I say, talk about a pastor, I'm basically putting myself under that accountability. I'm not really concerned about anybody else out there. And I talked to how that those key you know, two verses are really key. One, for me as a pastor, uh, and for two, uh, you as a parent on establishing a rule of order in your family, me as a pastor in the church by which we go by. And I gave you two great verses. Both of these verses are found in the book of 1 Timothy, and as you know, uh, Timothy is written uh, by Paul to Timothy, his son of the Lord. And in that, <clears throat> he gives him instructions uh, about how to be a pastor. 
and uh, the, it's incredible stuff. In fact, he charges him a number of times, and every pastor <clears throat> should see those charges and understand those charges. And then in 2 Timothy, he goes into dealing with false doctrine, and every pastor should understand that. <clears throat> but he goes through the qualifications, first of all, for a, not only a pastor, but also for a deacon. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, "...one that ruleth his own house well." having his children in subjection with all gravity. The second one is in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, where he says, But if any provide not for his own house, especially those of his own household, he denies the faith and he's worse than an infidel. I cannot stress to you enough the importance of understanding these verses. We live in a, in a Christianity today where the families have really uh, fallen apart. And moms and dads have not understood or have neglected to uh, apply what they know into making those things uh, steadfast and sure. And then we looked at two key components to establishing a righteous rule in a rod of iron, giving an order. And we talked about the aspect of rod and reproof. And, you know, the rod being the action of discipline, like corporal punishment, the reproof being the consequences of our action that caused the discipline. And, and the understanding that you need to follow through on both of them, me as a pastor and you as parents. Uh, and, and, and just dealing with the disobedience, uh, but also the reproof holds us accountable to the consequences of our action. It has to be both. And when you do both, verse 15... Uh, the Bible says that the rod and reproof giveth wisdom. And, of course, it's the, uh, you know, it's the plan of God to make everything work in a, in a workable order. And you'll remember last week I left you with four powerful concepts for pastoring and for parenting. And the first one was that we need to establish a throne, a righteous reign, that the child knows that there is a brick wall that he will run into uh, at a certain point. We'll, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. The second one was establishing a rod and reproof. Don't just deal with the disobedience, but deal with the instructions of the consequences of what, you know, has happened. And then, of course, uh, you know, we talked about never abandoning your kids. Your kids are going to grow up, especially your young parents. Your kids are going to grow up at that most formidable age where they need. I cannot tell you how they need uh, the structure put into their lives. And without that, then it just all falls apart. And then, of course, the fourth one was uh, governing and watching the right influences in your child's life. And, and we, we, we talked about that. And, uh, you know, uh, and so I, I said all that last week. And, you know, as I said, it was kind of a simple but profound introduction to what we're, we're going to look at today. And what I want to try to accomplish today is to tie in last week uh, with uh, the two verses this week uh, to give you the key to, uh, you know, two aspects of ministry, not only to your family, but, you know, uh, in, in building a church. Someday, if the Lord tarries is coming, I have no doubt in my mind that uh, some of you uh, will build a church, some of you guys. We're young yet, and we're still putting a lot of pieces together, but... Uh, it will only happen in time. 
you're going to find at one of these little satellite places out there that we're dealing with or someplace somewhere God is going to just open the door and you know um you know and you know in that endeavor I'm going to tell you right now will have its challenges you know it, it will be a, it will be a you know it will be not an easy thing to do so what you don't want to do is you don't want to make it harder and in some cases impossible by not following the biblical patterns that will surely show you what and what not to do. Uh, and it's, a, it's one of those things where, you know, building the church, building any church will have its, its issues, I guarantee you. It'll have its challenges. But we complicate that by getting into scenarios and not knowing the biblical pattern of how to do that. It's a lot like your own Christian life. And then the second thing is, is building your family. As we have seen, uh, this was the key uh, to everything, the theme of ministry, God's central plan uh, in the New Testament building around two concepts, the New Testament local church and New Testament families. And a church will only be as strong as the families that are in it. And I know that we have many of you who are singles, uh, not yet, and you're not married, but you will be someday. So you need to understand this now and realize these things. So I look at it that you're in a great position to prepare yourself that you don't make some of the mistakes that other people have made. And in both cases, you know, that will be the biblical process of establishing a working ministry uh, in both cases, the church, you know, and the family. So now today I want us to look at Proverbs chapter 29, just two verses. And, uh, you know, we're going to look at the next two aspects here, and we're going to tie it into last week. Now, here's what it says. It says, Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is, is he. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. We love you. Thank you for the time we've set aside to study your word I pray, Father, for every single man and woman in our, in our, in our service today that they would understand how this is uh, so good for them that long before they ever enter into that uh, relationship of a contract of, of marriage or engagement, uh, Lord, they have and understand what they need to look for and what they need to see and understand. I thank you for all the young couples that we have in our church that that uh, have kids and those kids are growing up and we have such a great time with them and enjoy them. And I pray that they'll see and understand uh, better than they already do uh, their importance as a father and a mother. And Lord, help us on all levels, whether our ch children are with us or our children are away from us. Help us, Lord, to realize that there's always something we can do and help us work together to accomplish that. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, these verses will be used by every pastor and, and teacher probably in the last thousand years to make the point that about a church needing a vision. And I'm absolutely on board with that. I, I agree with that 100%. Uh, <clears throat> but I want to take it just a little deeper than that today. I think that, uh, that uh, they missed the point the, the point here, and I, I don't know why, I mean, everybody wants to preach verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish and apply it to the church, but they don't want to put it in the context of verse 17 that says, correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. The two verses go together. And why we would separate them out, I, I don't know. And I don't mind, which you'll see before I'm done today, the church does need a vision. 
But again, as I've already said, the church will only be as strong as the families, and the family needs to provide that vision for their children. And, uh, you know, uh, in the context here is, is a son, and I want you to see that. And if you knew Book of Proverbs, which you, most of you do by now, you'd know that in the first seven chapters, if you want to break down the Book of Proverbs, it breaks down the first seven chapters, and there's a break, 8 to 30, and then there's a break, and then the last one is chapter 31. And in the first seven chapters, every one of those chapters will start out with my son. And the first seven chapters really, or my child, and the first seven chapters will, will give you what you need to get. He's talking to his own son, God talking to us as his son, telling us this is what Proverbs will do for you. And then in, verse, in chapter 8 through chapter 20, uh, 30, you actually have the Proverbs. And he goes through one-liners, one-on-one, contrasting everything that is right and good. So you'll get that understanding and you get the wisdom. Then in chapter 31, we all know that the story of the virtuous woman. And the story of the virtuous woman is a picture of us after we have done what the book of Proverbs has said to us. And uh, so he's talking about a son. And we are here as male or female or sons of God. And we talked about that 39 a little bit. Doctrinally, of course, Exodus chapter 4, we know that uh, Israel as a nation is God's son. They fall into the kingdom of heaven, the physical kingdom. We've talked about this many, many times. In Exodus chapter 4, God specifically calls Israel his son. And this is why you'll find in the New Testament in Matthew there, he says, my son have I called out of Egypt. He's talking about Israel. And inspirationally, Obviously, it's me and you as God's son in the church age under the dominance of the kingdom of God. Now, let me explain something to you here that has been lost today, and most people don't have a clue about it, and this is where a lot of confusion comes in. We all know the term born again, and we use that term freely and and loosely, because, as we should, because all of us, if you're saved this morning, you have been born again. And But what you need to understand that there's, the term born again is applied two different ways in the Bible. And this is where the failure and the breakdown come in. The first term is referred to born again will be the nation of Israel. And that'll be in John chapter 3, verse 3, in the story of Nicodemus. The second application of the term born again will be for you and for me. And that'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the word of God. Over there in John 3, when Nicodemus is talking to, to, to uh, Jesus, and again, <clears throat> I've told you a hundred million times uh, that, uh, that everything in the Gospels will deal with the, the nation of Israel. And when Nicodemus comes to him and recognizes who he is, remember the Lord doesn't even recognize the fact that he recognized him. He just says, except a man be born again. That man that he's talking about is the nation of Israel. And where you and I got born again today in the spiritual kingdom of the kingdom of God, where you and I got born again by a spiritual new birth that put us as individuals into the body of Christ. The nation of Israel gets born again at the second coming of Christ as a nation, never individuals. Most people have a tough time with that. Most people cannot follow the Bible through in everything. You know, in the Bible, you find the word regeneration. That's really what happened when you got born again. You got regenerated. Regenerated. 
Adam and Eve were generated initially. They lost it. So when Christ came and died on the cross through being born again for you and for me, we got that generation back or regeneration, regenerated. And you're going to find that the word regeneration is only found two times in the Bible, only two. And you're going to find that in Titus chapter 3, uh, verse 5, it's talking about you and me now, where it says, uh, not by works of righteousness which we have done. And he talks about the, uh, in the regeneration uh, and how we got saved. And then in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, it's dealing with the nation of Israel. Only found two times, one for you and for me and one for Israel. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, it says, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of glory in the regeneration. That's Israel. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where, I don't know, guys just don't get it today. Uh, they don't get into the Bible. They, they don't follow those things through. Uh, I've heard preachers get up and talk about, you know, John 3, 3, where Jesus told Nicodemus, the, a man needed to be born again, where they just missed the man. He wasn't even talking to Nicodemus directly as, Nicodemus, you need to get born again. He said, except the man. And how could, a, how could anybody at that point in time, like Nicodemus, get born again when it takes the Holy Spirit of God to regenerate you and the Holy Spirit of God didn't come to Acts chapter 1 and 2? But we don't think things through. Here you learn the Bible. Here you learn the ins and outs of the Word of God the way it should be. And you and I got regenerated at, as individuals at, at the time of salvation. That'll be Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and again, Romans chapter 8 for you. Israel will be regenerated as a nation at the second coming of Christ, Matthew 19, 28, and John chapter 3. One of the great keys of learning your Bible the right way is being able to rightly divide the word of truth to see who, not what, not just what, and this is the problem. It's not just what he's saying, folks. It's who's he saying it to. All the Bible is written for you, but not all the Bible is written to you. And you have to rightly divide who he's speaking to. Now, also in our context, it's talking about you and I as a, a parent, providing a vision for our children as, as uh, you know, uh, as well as me as a pastor, providing a vision for the church. So I, I get the verse. You know, but it's also talking about parents. And that's, I'm going to come back and forth on this. You know, parents always want to, and, it, and the verse says, you know, it, over there it says, correct thy son and he shall give thee rest, yea, he shall give the delight unto thy soul. Parents always want to delight themselves in their kids. This is true if it's saved or lost. I thank you so much for, now you understand why I wanted you to stand up and take that picture. <laughs> Jenny was back here taking hers. Here you got two little guys who are the sweetest guys on the planet. They didn't make any points. <laughs> They're not even sure what position they play. <laughs> and you're over there like they just won the World Series, you know. I, but that's okay. I love it. Jenny was back there firing it up, you know. When the, I, I noticed when the little kids sing up here at Christmas time. Uh, can I be? Can we? Can we talk? It's 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 the worst thing in the world singing like. There's no harmony. You got kids that are paying attention. 
I mean, they're looking all over the place. They're slapping the kid in front of them. And you're sitting back here. I mean, you're... I wish this, you, some of you were on your knees praying as much as you are getting a shot of those kids up here. And, it's, and, and, and I'm all for it. I think it's great because it's cute to see our little kids up here singing. It doesn't matter if it's good or not. It doesn't matter if they're in tune. It doesn't matter if they're looking around. That adds to the fun of it. I mean, they're up here singing a little Brady. He's looking around like he's a bird watcher. I love that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great stuff. And not a one of you went out of here and said, boy, they were out of tune. And if somebody would have said that to you, you'd have got upset. Now, don't get mad at me because I'm saying that because I'm just telling you a dying truth. They're not the moron tabernacle choir by any stretch of the imagination. But they're the cutest things on the planet. And you love doing that. I mean, you just love it. And I love you doing that. I, I enjoy that. I, that's why I had you do it. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I was saying to myself, boy, if that doesn't make my sermon this morning. Here's two little guys, have no idea what team they're on, have no idea what position they play, didn't make any points, and we're treating them like they're the NBA stars of basketball. I love it. That's what parents are supposed to do. They, you delighted in them. Jenny delighted in them. I delighted in them. I think it's the coolest thing in the world, you know, to ask them, and they don't even know what position they play. That's great. But parents always want to delight themselves in their kids, in basketball, in soccer. You know, I mean, in, you know, in track, in gymnastics, in, in football, in baseball. It doesn't matter. It, even in academics. I mean, when your child, you know, and this has always been a dream of mine. I, I, I never wanted to be an athlete because I knew I already was. I, I never had that desire. My desire in school was to have a four-point average. I can't even imagine what that is. And I, now, you know, I know a lot of your kids get a two-point or a three-point, but that's the drug alcohol content of their blood when they get pulled over. I'm talking about in school. I, I mean, I can't even imagine. National Honor Society. You know what? I died. I would have died to have that tassel that put it on the other side. Now, to me, that is... Doesn't get any better than that. Hey, I was I was in the third grade so long the kids brought me the apple. They thought I was the teacher. <laughs> you think I'm lying about this? I, for I wanted to go in the military as soon as I got out of school, and I had a tough time in certain things in school. I was not the best student, and uh, I mean, you know, if you know, I wasn't into sports. My deal was the hand grenade toss. I could put a hand grenade through a window at 50 feet. But anyway, that wasn't in the curriculum at school. It was a little bit later on, but we won't get into that. So I'm there, you know, and I'm, I'm failing civics. And so I, he's dead now, so it doesn't matter. I bribed the civics teacher. I actually did. I went into him, and I don't remember his name. He was a saved guy. I do know that. And, uh, and I said, sir, I said, I'm not doing very well in civics. And I said, I got to have this class to graduate. And I want you to know that my desire when I graduate is I'm going to go into the Army. And I just, I don't know what I can do. I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not good at this. And he said, here's what I want you to do for me. He said, what I need is a copy of, and I still don't know what this is today, is a model state constitution. He says, I've tried to get one everywhere. And he says, I can't. If you can find me a model of a model state constitution, because he taught government. 
He says, I'll pass you. That'll be all you need. Well, where am I going? What's a, you know, where do you go? I mean, I don't know. So you're right. I found a way. I called my, called my, uh, my uh, congressman. congressman. Yeah, that's who it was. <laughs> I called my congressman. I said, you know, and I, and now here, you think I'm going to tell him, look, I'm stupid and I'm failing civics and I need this to bribe my teacher? No. I told him I was doing, again, you know, we're all sin. <laughs> I, many times I pardon you, you pardon me. I told him, I said, I'm doing this great dissertation for my thesis on government. And I have been unable to find, and I talked, and I have been unable to find a model state constitution. He said, "Oh, he said, son, I can help you with that." I said, "I would much appreciate it." And I said, "I'm sure that vast numbers of people, when I give my dissertation, you know, and do my paper on it, would be greatly enhanced and 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 understanding because of your helping me." And then, then what? You know what? You go so far sometimes with a BS, and then you get in trouble. And he said, "Would you send me a copy of it when it's done?" Well, you know, all congressmen are drunks and liars, so I knew he'd forget about it by the next weekend. But he sent it to me. I remember today, took it into my civics teacher. He looked at it and he said, you don't even have to show up for the test, Bob. He says, and good luck to you. That was it. I was a terrible student. I, I, I was. And I, I would have died to have been a member of the Honor Society. You know, I mean, it's a thing where I just, I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, I mean... Uh, I, academics is a great thing. I, I'm all my girl and my grandkids are not, not Jamie and Kelly. They were. But <laughs> <laughs> they took after their dad. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure who they bribed, but anyway. <laughs> but my grandkids, they're all. They're all going to be. They're smart, and they don't even study. Are you kidding me? Well, I didn't study either, but it's the thing where, but I, I'd love to do that, you know? I mean, I mean, I, you know, in, in music, I mean, it's a thing where, you know, in choir, orchestra, you know, it's a, it's a great thing, band, orchestra, choir, you know, a choir concert comes and half the family will be there, you know, there's somebody oh, she's singing a solo tonight. Yeah, she's singing a solo while 50 other people are singing too, and you can't even hear her. But you know what? It's okay. You delight yourself in that. I do. I do. My son got a great job. My daughter got a great job. I am all for it. They graduated from college with honors. Hey, that's what we do. And I think it's great. Hey, don't, don't tell me about it on Sunday morning. Are you kidding me? I will celebrate your birthdays. I celebrate your anniversaries. And then I digress into the account of whatever good thing happened to you. Some of you... Like Sonia, she sold her house. Somebody else got their first credit card. Somebody else got out from under the DWI. Somebody else got off parole. Hey, I want to know those things because we want to rejoice with each other. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what this church is about. Anything that you do that you feel is important, I think it's important. I mean, it's just that simple. And, you know, but having said all that, now I'm going to get serious. Let me be crystal clear. That's all wonderful and it's all good. But I'm going to tell you, it pales in comparison to us as parents having our children by our side in ministry with us. And there will be no greater delight to your soul than to watch your children grow up 
have a part of them getting saved. You know, watching them get consecrated, watching them figure out for themselves the aspect of separation and develop into your ministry partner. I'm just telling you right now that that there's nothing greater than that. There, I, I'm all for everything. Believe me, you know I am. And I enjoy those things. But I'm just telling you a dying truth. That unbroken chain of truth establishing itself within your house. The Timothy principle, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The same things that you've heard of me, you commit to faithful men. That unbroken line of truth. It should move right through you and your wife into your kids and then into your grandkids and every future generation, an unbroken chain of biblical truth within that family. And I'm telling you right now, there's absolutely nothing better than that. Absolutely. Now, let me just say this, and I know, I always got to clarify things like this because I don't want anybody feeling bad, but I know that many of you, many of you guys and gals, you know, you came from families where your mom and dad were unsaved or they were saved, but they didn't do what was right with you. I get that. And the, and the real delight in my heart is to have a point in your life and a part in your life, and everybody else here too, that it starts, that unbroken chain of truth hasn't been in your life up to now, but from this point on in your life, it's going to be. And when you get married and you have kids, you'll do what's right. You broke the cycle. And boy, I'll tell you what, I have, I have more respect for you and love you more than I could ever say because that takes courage. You know, it takes courage to be trained one way all your life and then come to the reality that it was the wrong thing and then decide you're going to do the right thing from that point on. It doesn't get any better than that with me. You become my new best friend. I ain't kidding you, man. That, that's great stuff. And it's one of those things where it's the same way with me as your pastor. You know, I delight in you. <clears throat> I really do. You know, I, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6, the children, children are the crown of all men. And from an inspirational aspect, that is simply that, you know, you have children uh, physically and they do what's right and then you're, you're my children and then you have kids and they're my grandchildren, children, children, and the unbroken chain. It, it, it doesn't get any better than that. It's, it's, it, it's just the thing. But spiritually in a church, it's the same way. Many of you, who are doing what's right with the Word of God in your life are second and third generation. Somebody that came into this church five or six, seven, eight years ago, got grounded in the Word of God, got everything that they needed, then they took you under their wing. And then you took somebody else under their wing. And it doesn't get any better than that. That's the, that's the assurance that no matter what happens to me, everything is in place. Everything in place to make sure that this church goes on. You know, and this is not, seriously, this is not a criticism. None of this is. I'm just talking to you. <clears throat> there are some fathers who, <clears throat> when their kids hit a certain age, they want them to move out. Uh, you know, get out on their own. Now, look, <clears throat> this is not a criticism. It really isn't. Uh, I've seen them parents that wanted to, when their kids were still living home, wanted to charge them rent. That, you know what? Not a criticism. But all I can tell you is, brother, that ain't me. I wanted my kids to stay with me forever. When they got married, as far as I was concerned, they all moved in. And they did for a while because you built a house and you built a house or something and you didn't have any place to stay. And you all moved back in again. It was the funnest time of my life. 
I didn't have to mow the grass. I didn't have to do <laughs> the snow. I didn't have to do anything. It was almost like that was my millennial reign of Christ for a while. <laughs> but, you know, it's a thing where I loved it. I, I never wanted him to leave. I, I never still don't want him to leave. I know it goes that way and it happens. And I know that they get their families and they move on and they do things. And, you know, Grandpa gets left out of the thing. I did it. And it's just the way it goes. It's just the way it goes. I get that. But you look at that and you think, wow, you know what? Because we were a team. We were a team. And, you know, and even though you live where you live and you live where you live and, and I live where I live and, you know, it doesn't change the fact that geographical location never break up the team. And it's, it's, just, it's just the way that it is. You know, I, I've seen over the years great preachers. I have a list of five of them here, but I, I, when I wrote the list down, I wasn't ever intending to tell you their names. <clears throat> You'd know most of them, uh, and I wouldn't do that. They're all gone now, went home to be with the Lord. But I, 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 you know, they would be held up as great men who built great churches. And they really did. But I got to also tell you that these great men who built all these great children today, or churches today, have lost all of their kids. I got one pastor in mind who really was there in the beginning of my world. And he had a couple of boys and a girl. I don't know what to do to one, but he was a Baptist preacher out of J. Frank Norris's crowd. And today as we speak, both of his kids are Episcopalian preachers baptizing babies for salvation. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? I, 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 I've seen guys that have their kids. One kid will go into the world and maybe the other kid will get into some heresy someplace. And they'll completely, completely denounce everything that their dad stood for. I've seen pastors who built great churches. And, you know, they, they all had the truth. Most of them came out of J. Frank Norris's world. They, they understood the Bible, but they lost all of their kids. Or I've seen their kids totally reject anything to do with God, whatever their father taught. And you know what the tragedy is? Those kids, their kids, have their kids. Their kids marry unsaved people, Catholics, Mormons, whatever. And the tragedy is that maybe just three short, certainly by four, but two or three generations down the road, their kids, grandkids, won't even know anything about the great man who built the church and what he did with the Bible. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. You know, and many of you, most of you, have done what's right with the Bible. You this is the place that you don't stay if you don't want to really get into the Bible. If you're looking for a passing romance with God and the Word of God, this is not the place for you. No, no, we're a full-blown love-in. I mean, this is, this is it. This is, this is the Christian Woodstock right here. Those of you know who Woodstock was. You said, well, my gun's got a Woodstock on it. Yeah, that's good, that's good. And you can see the effect that it has on our church. I mean, I don't say much about it. I just sit back and enjoy it. But <clears throat> there will be times when I'm going to tell you, some of you just impress me to death. And I've watched you grow. I've watched you come to the place where, you know, you've done what's right with the Bible. 
now many of you are having your own little guys and gals, and they're the sweetest little things. And I have no doubt in my mind, there's no doubt in my mind, that your kids will grow up being everything that God wants you to be. And I've seen you older moms and dads who maybe, you know, you got into this thing late. And I've watched you deal with your children and hold them accountable. You know, it's, 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 it's what needs to be done. And I, I'm, I'm proud of you in every aspect. But it's a true statement in 2918, where there is no vision, the people perish, but happy is he that keepeth the law, or keepeth the law, happy is he. And this will be the key to a successful church as a pastor for you young guys, <coughs> and also as a parent for you young people as, as a mom and dad. Now in your Bible... <coughs> The definitive passage on providing a vision for a church or for a family will be found in the book of Habakkuk chapter 2. So I want us to turn over there. Now, <clears throat> you know, when it comes to a, a vision in the standard teaching is, and I, I'm not saying this isn't good, it, 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 it is. I heard a preacher preach one time on this very passage, and he said a Christian should have three visions. His first vision should be for the fields that are white under harvest. That's the lost people. That's good. I get that. The second one would be he should have a vision for the rapture of the church, the day he's going to meet the Lord. That's good. I, I get that. I, I like that. And then, of course, the third one, you probably already guessed it, would be a vision for the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's a good little outline. <coughs> that I, <coughs> If I was going to a church someplace, I'd probably clear, clean that up and use it. I'd add some things to it, but I, I get the point, and it's it, that's the standard mindset on it. But I want to, I want to, if I may today, if you'll bear with me for a few moments, I want to go a little deeper than that today. Now let's look at Habakkuk chapter two and verses one through three, and then I want to come back and make some some observations on it, and and then I think it'll help you. Here's what he says: I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain upon the tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now the passage without a doubt will be the key to, to any church. It'll be the key to any family, uh, whether it makes it or not. Now, I understand in churches there are circumstances sometimes where the pastor's in a no-win situation. I get that. And so I don't want to apply this completely across the board because I know I deal with it many times, and I've seen it many times, where a pastor is a good guy. He's trying to do everything he knows how to do, but he's just fighting an upstream battle. I get that. I understand that. But I want to say this. In most cases, if a church doesn't succeed and it fails, uh, or a family uh, doesn't uh, make it and they fail, it's going to be caused that in both cases no vision was laid out. And I want to talk to you how to do that because someday some of you guys will probably be out there. Whether you are or you're not, there'll be plenty of you right now that are having children and will be continue to have children uh, that this will have to this will have to help. And in these set of verses, I want to, first of all, I want to lay out four areas of a vision that needs to be in place, and then I want to show you uh, how to understand, after I give you those four, how you make that work. In other words, when I'm done today, I want you to have the complete, as they would say, the whole enchilada. 
you know, whatever an enchilada is. I want you to have that. In any, in any church, you know, it's, it's, it needs to work this way. Now look at verse 1. Go in back, turn back into Habakkuk, to chapter 1, verse 1. That's where I should have had you go first. <clears throat> now this, if we're going to get a vision, this is the most important thing. So we've got to go back here and look at verse 1. And it says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And in verse 3, it talks about what God showed him to give him that burden. And the first thing I want you to clearly understand that the the vision must start with a burden. If you don't have a burden, you're never going to get the vision. But here's the key, and this is where some depart from it. If you look at the passage here, it's not just you having a burden about whatever you want to have, but rather getting God's burden of what he wants you to do. In other words, if you don't first stop and find out what God's burden is concerning a church or your family or whatever, if you just operate on your emotions and your feelings that this is what I feel, this is what I want, so this is what I'm going to do, you're going to fail. A real biblical vision has to restart with a real biblical burden, and that comes back to getting God's burden. In any church, it's simply seeing you as God sees you. Seeing you, uh, you know, and looking you not as a human being would look at you. When I see people, and, you know, I get criticized for this a lot, but when I see people, I don't necessarily see the bad in them. It doesn't mean that I'm blind to it. I guess... I see the, my own bad in me, <laughs> and that really helps me with yours. And it's a thing where I, you know, I realize that everybody has struggles. And you know what? I would never be where I am today if I'm anywhere, if everybody who helped me would just always would have focused on my problems. They looked at me, and they saw beyond that what I had to offer, and that's where they developed. And in doing that, it helped me overcome all the other stuff. And when God sees you, he doesn't look at you as a sinner anymore. That was covered at Calvary. When you got saved, he now looks at you as his son. And that's how I look at you. I know we all got our problems. Hey, I know for a heartbeat, most of us are going to do dumb things. I get it. And some of the stuff you shouldn't do because you should know better. I get it. But at the end of the day, you have to come to the point where you see that person the way God sees them. Understanding that the church of God is, this church is God's only structure. And, you know, you make the church. This building is no, is, by itself is nothing. The sheetrock there is what they got down at the little Barker bar down here. I know, I've been there the other night. It's the same kind of sheetrock. <laughs> same kind of ceiling, same kind of lights, the dimmer down there. And, uh, you know, it, 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 the carpet's the same. Uh, the wood that made this pulpit, there's nothing holy about it. It's just the same wood that you got on your kitchen table. No, no, the thing that makes this place special is you. And the moment you forget that, the moment I forget that, the moment I start to think that you're not, every one of you, no matter where you're at, the reason I know you're so absolutely special to God is because God took the time out to save you. If you weren't, he'd have just said, I don't need him. Now, you may not ever realize all of that in your life, but you know what? That's not my problem. My problem is I will always realize that in your life and I will do my best and everything that I know how to do to make you help you get to that point 
And I, I, you know, I don't look at people and think, well, that that that, that guy's really stupid or that, that gal's really dumb. I, that, that's not how I look at you. We're all stupid. We're all dumb. I may not like all the things that you do, and I may have to deal with you on it sometimes. But there'll never be a time where I don't do it because I want the best for you. Because that's what God wants. Being a pastor can be tough from one aspect because many times you've got to say to somebody and do to somebody what God would do if he was here. And I might just say, you're a lot better off this little two-bit, tin-horned preacher dealing with you than God coming down and dealing with you. But that's the way God set it up, you see. So, you know, I, this, is the, this is the fullness of God that he talked about in Ephesians 3. And it's the same in any family. It's seeing God's burden for your family. Uh, to, God's, to be the, the vital part of his plan to reach the world and realize, you know, that here again, it's the Timothy principle. Seeing your children as God's heritage, Psalms 127, verse 3. Not your heritage, not your, not your future, God's future in your family. That's the difference. We look at our kids and our family and we see where we want to go. No, 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 no. That's okay. But first and foremost, you've got to see where God wants them to go. Seeing your children from God's standpoint, having God's burden for your family, understanding within that burden there's the role of the father and the role of the mother, and you must get that down. Knowing that you are the key element to their success and, and for God's children, just as for the pastor of any church, will be the key to his people getting where God wants them to go. Everything, and I say it all the time, everything rises and falls on leadership. And it's so true. Psalms 127, verse 4, we make all the excuses we want. The Bible says, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. I've had guys tell me in the ministry that's lost their kids and their kids are in this terrible sin or doing this or doing that, and they want to put it on the fact, well, you know what, they have a free choice. Well, all right, who taught them the value system of that choice? That's the, where it comes back to. See, you want to forget that part of it. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's, not, when he's old, he won't depart from it. You want to say, train up, don't train up a child, and away he'll go. And that's the other side of it. Now, once we have God's burden, uh, and that burden, uh, you know, is the burden through your life in the Word of God, and you see it, whether it's a pastor or a family, then God will give you a vision of how to build His church. And as a parent, He'll give you the understanding how to build your children. And of course, we know the answer to that in a general, generic sense is building them through principles and patterns. But I want to get more specific in that. But I will say this, no right burden, there'll never be a right vision. It's just that simple. Now, the second thing, chapter 2, back to chapter 2 now, verse 1. He says, I will stand upon my watch. You know, as a pastor and also as a parent, we have a responsibility because we have been entrusted with the watch care of souls. You, as a mom and dad clearly have been entrusted with the watch care of your children. Their soul going to heaven or hell flatly lays right in your domain. And it's just that simple. As the arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. It's just that simple. No way around it. And as a pastor, I am responsible 
for what I teach you, what I give you. I can't as a parent, like a parent, come down and, and, and deal with you uh, in, in, in many ways like a parent can. But as a pastor, you always give them the truth. And every time I stand in a pulpit or teach Thursday night Bible study, I'm giving you the best shot I got at what God wants you to hear. But here's the personal responsibility on your part. You have to pick that up and do something with it. But a good pastor knows what his people need. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 23, it says that we're to know the state of our flocks and look well nigh to our herd. My job is to know your spiritual condition. That's why I spend so much time with it. That's why I get close to you. That's why we have the relationships that we have. Most pastors want an arm's length you know, distance from you. They don't want to know anything about you. They don't want to that. That's not me. I, the only way I can know where you're at is to know where you're at is to know where you and I are at. And that's what it takes. It takes a workable relationship together. It, it's just that simple. And a pastor, as a parent, you know, we have to watch out for them uh, what they cannot see yet for themselves, especially as a parent. Your kids are growing up and they're young. There's a lot of things out there that they don't know. Uh, we got three dogs, three dogs at our house. Two upstairs and one downstairs. The one downstairs is my little yellow lab, Daisy. I had Buddy, the brother, but he, he, he went to heaven. He passed on. <laughs> Daisy got a beating last week. If Peter would hear this message, I'd be in jail. <laughs> I take her out on a leash all the time. Lately, I felt like she's so good that I can just when I'm going to stay in the yard and not go up the end of the street, I can just let her go out and I'll stand there and she'll go do her business and she'll come back in. Now, I've already known that Daisy has no concept of what a car is. She's like the dog that, that uh, Terry, what's the, what's, what's the guy's name in Alabama that we all know, uh, Doug Ripley? Yeah. Doug Ripley he told me the story. He had a dog that liked to chase cars. And one day he caught one. And the dog ran over. And Daisy's the dumbest thing. She'll, she'll walk right out in front of the street because she doesn't know about cars. And she doesn't know anything about cars. She doesn't know that a car will run you over. It will kill you. It will do irreparable damage to you. She doesn't know that. She thinks, I don't know what she thinks. She's out there. She's walking back and forth, going back and forth, and she just doesn't get it. Well, I took her, off, took her out the garage. She do her business, come back here, I'm standing there. What is this little kid on a bike? Which is, she's not going to bite the kid. She, she's, she's a friend. She'll love you to death. And, she, and the kid wasn't scared, but she's down there, tail wagging, you know, what's left of her tail, wagging back and forth, happy as can be. And suddenly she starts running across the street. And I call her. She didn't pay any attention. You know, she, 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 now she runs to the next house. And I'm saying, Daisy, get over here. You know, and she, just like some of your teenage kids, and so she, now she's running up the street. And I'm going crazy because there's cars coming down my street. She's going to get hit. So finally, I, and, and when I go chase her, you know what they do. They think you're playing with them. <laughs> so she goes down that little three-point stance, you know. <laughs> well, finally, I got her. I beat her senseless. <laughs> I drug her. I slapped her, kicked her, beat her. <laughs> And when she went in the house for the rest of the day, she just sat over there on the couch looking at me with a tail, 
Uh, she's only got a tail that long. It, it, but it was tucked in as good as you could tuck in a tail that long. And she's just looking at me, you know, and, and I'm saying to her, that's all I have to do. You know what? She learned her lesson. But my point is this. She doesn't know what out there is going to hurt her. And I'm telling you, young kids, there's a lot in that world out there that can hurt you. Amen. And your parents have been around for a little while. I know you think they're stupid. I know you think they don't know. You know, I know you think it's cool to sneak out of your house in the middle of the night and go meet your friends or whatever that's going to be until you meet the wrong guy and you wind up being on a milk carton someplace. Yeah. I'm telling you. And I know you don't like to hear this, kids. I know you don't, but your parents are smarter than you. Amen. They understand that there's things out there that will hurt you. <laughs> Thank you. And when I become president... Uh, <laughs> Hi, my name is Bob Alexander, and I approve this message. <laughs> There's things out there that will hurt you. And a good parent knows that, and that's why they'll try to tell you, don't do this. Don't go here. Don't hang out with this person. And you know what? If I might, that's what I do from this pulpit through my preaching. I tell you to stay away from this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Some of you have come up to me and you said, hey, I'm going to go do this. No, you know what? Don't do that. In other words, that's our job. We have the watch care of your soul. Your parents much more than I do. But I take the responsibility really greatly because I try to, everything I try to do, I try to give you something that is going to make you better. And a good pastor knows what his people need, or he should. And a good parent will do the exact same thing. You know, I've given you before the five stages of spiritual growth that you bring your children through. You know, when they're very, very young, the discipline stage, that's where you deal with all the problems. By the time they're five, six years old, discipline's taken care of. And this is my fault. I should have started with Daisy when she was a puppy, but I didn't. And it's a thing where, you know, then you move into the relationship stage, and that's when you can really communicate with them. And then you move into the fellowship stage, and that's where you now take what you have with them built and you transfer that to the Lord. And then as they get a little older, you have the responsibility stage. That's where you, you give them responsibility. And then uh, as they grow, as the, the unbroken chain moves on, then they enter into the ministry stage, and they become your partner in ministry. And you know what? It isn't any different in a church. You all, when you get saved, you're a baby in Christ Jesus. You're born again. And so we take you through the discipline stage called Discipleship One. And that's where you learn the basic fundamental. The word discipline or discipleship is key to the word discipline. You're going to discipline yourself to Christ to teaching to be his disciple. And then, you know, once you get around for a while and go through that, then we go through the relationship stage. And that's where disciple, that's, that's D2, you know, where you learn the seven things that changed about you today. you got to say, begin to build that. Then you work into the fellowship stage. And then you work into the responsibility stage. Some of you are going down to the jail this morning. Some of you are going down to the rest home this afternoon. Some of you are going to the mission tonight. Some of you are discipling somebody else. You see, the real mark in your life as a Christian is not how many years you've been saved, but it's when do you take responsibility for somebody else's soul in teaching them the Bible. That's the responsibility stage. And my job is to get you all there. My job is to help you get there. My job is to give you all the tools that you need to be able to do that. Some of you, and I feel bad about this, you'll never make it. You'll never do it. 
but you won't ever not do it because of me. You'll do it because you don't want to. Just like, you know, it's, it's part of the process. The third thing, he says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. Now, we already talked about you've got to have a watch. Now I'm going to add to that. That watch needs to be from an elevated position. The tower here clearly will be the Tower of David found in Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 4. Psalms 18, verses 1 and 2 says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Psalm 61, 35 is called a strong tower. Now this strong tower, the Tower of David, will be your elevated position of God's through God's principles and God's Word that allow you to see things long before they come to you. And it will help you see your children from a whole different perspective because now you'll start looking, first of all, as yourself from as God's standpoint, then you see your children. This tower and your stand will do basically three things for you. First of all, it will protect your children. It'll protect your children because, and yourself because you're up so high that your enemies can't get to you. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that's because you're seated in heavenly places. The second thing, it allows you to see three-dimensional. You can see a panoramic view all around you. You're not, you're not limited to just a line of sight. This is true in your church. This is why I try to teach the Bible from a doctrinal inspiration and historical application. I always try to give you the three uh, aspects of it. Everything I do, I try to lay out that three-dimensional approach to you, but you need to do it with your kids. And it helps you to be prepared to deal with whatever's coming and not be caught by surprise because you'll understand that. The third thing, in Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 4, the this Tower of David is likened to somebody's neck. And if you contrast Song of Solomon 4.4 with Isaiah 3.16, you'll see that the neck will always represent man's will toward God. And in Song of Solomon, he's got the Tower of David, the neck that's based on the Word of God. And in Isaiah 3.16, he's got his own will without God, stiff neck toward God. And you'll see this Tower is a picture of our broken will to God's plan. And that's what it takes if you're ever going to, as a pastor, be what God wants you to be and as a parent be what God wants you to be. And as you do that to yourself, you'll instill that in your children or the church as a pastor. Listen, let me tell you something very true. If what I have for you today is not contagious, then it's contaminated. And what if you have for your kids is not contagious, then it's contaminated. Now, the fourth thing. Look at verse 1 again. He says, And I will watch to see what he will say unto me, God speaking to me. And what I shall answer when I am reproved. Wow. I should have saved just this verse for next week, but we can't. Then reproof that we've been talking so much about has to start with us. And the question is, we, we will never get the burden 
or the vision, if we're not willing to change about us what needs to be changed or take the reproof that, when we, uh, that we want to give to others. You know, as human beings, and boy, this is so true. Most of you are young. Um, I'm old compared to most of you, and some of you in here are around my age. And I think all of us older folks would probably say this. The older we get, the less we like change. It's just that simple. I have my routine every day. You mess with it, I'll kill you. <laughs> but as a Christian, the older we get, the more you see that a Christian life is about change. We're in a constant flux of change. That's why a child of God needs to be flexible, needs to be adaptable, needs to be compatible, needs to be durable. And when they lose that, they become some old stick in the mud that everything's got to be their way or the highway. They're mean-spirited. They don't have any joy in their life. They're grumpy all the time. They just, you know, they're just miserable. Now, you got to get this. God will only change others, whether it's this church or your family, based on us seeing and hearing what God says to us first. And then how we respond to what he's saying and then allow God to change us. You will never change anybody with the word of God till the word of God first changes you. It's just that simple. And that's why he says, and, and we'll watch and to see. It isn't about watching what God is doing. It's watching what you're going to do when God tells you what you're doing isn't the right thing to do. I've had pastors that wanted to say, well, I want to change my church. Hey, the key to changing your church is changing God changing you in most cases. I've had parents say to me, hey, I really want my kids to change. Then you change because that's where it has to start. And the number one question today will be for a pastor, myself, or a father and a mother. How will you respond to the reproof of God to change uh, you first so that you can help change somebody else? And that's why, as I said, when that doesn't happen, I've seen God's people who are just, you know, you go to Baptist church, most Baptist churches, the deacons are the meanest people. It looks like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice. They are the meanest, sourest people on the planet. We had them back in Canton. There was one guy whose name was Marshall. And he was, I had him as a Sunday school teacher when I was just a little, little kid. And he was still around. He's probably dead now. I'm sure he's dead now. But he was still around when I was getting into the ministry. And he was the, he was the, he was the meanest guy on the planet. I remember one time as a kid, you know, all kids do this. The church was huge. It was big. And I went over during, it was during the church. I was out doing something, going to the restroom or whatever. And I, in a long hallway, and I, and I, and I turned the light out. And then turned it right back on. He comes over and grabbed me by the scruff of the thing. Now, you know, I wasn't really right with God at that point, And I was the last guy you want to grab by the scruff of the neck. But it's okay. I'm a respecter of an elder guy. But uh, my mouth wasn't. And he said to me, he said, hey, kid, he says, you know that you just wasted your whole offering turning that light back on. Now, that's supposed to devastate me. <laughs> I looked up and said, that couldn't be true. He said, well, it is true. I said, no, it didn't give anything today. <laughs> <laughs> 
Don't try that at home, okay? <laughs> but they're the meanest people on the planet. They're, 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 they're grumpy about everything. They're sour about everything. There's no joy in their life. I mean, they're just, they're just miserable. Why? Because they're in a church. They got a position. They're a deacon or trustee. I think he was a trustee. And you know what? They refused years ago for God to change them. So they just, the older they get, the more miserable they get. And the more miserable they get, the more miserable they make your life. And the number one question today for a pastor or for a father and a mother, how will we respond to the reproof that God gives us? And now, when you put those four areas in your life as a pastor for me or as a parent for you, here's the next three things that you want to do. The next three things is based on your understanding now of what we've talked about and how we're going to go on from here. Now, the next thing he says here is write the vision. Let me ask you a question. Does your child even understand what God wants with your family? I mean, you took them out and played ball with them. I mean, you threw shot hoops with them. You took them hunting with you. You took them fishing with you. You went to their sports day. Have you ever just sat down with your family and cleared off the table and just simply says, you know what, I just want you to know this is who we are and this is where we're going and this is how I'm going to help you get there. Have you just sat down and laid out the plan you have for your family? Told them how important they are? You know, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15 is a great verse, and I think that, you know, that everybody, everybody should have this in your house because, and point it to your kids very often because it talks about Joshua established a rule and a reign with his family. And he said in Joshua 24, 15, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord. You know, you're going to be saying that to your kids sometime because you're going to want to do one thing and they're going to want to do something else. And you're going to, I just flat up ask them, okay, so it seems evil unto you for to serve the Lord. Is that what you're telling me? Then you better choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which are your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land we dwell. And there comes the kicker, boy. But for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. That is a non-negotiable commodity. We ain't changing. And if you don't understand why we're not changing, allow me to explain it to you. Because this is God's family. God pays the rent. God gives us the food. God keeps the house. And you know what? I refuse to let you live like hell and live like the devil and then take God's money to pay for it. See, that's a rule. That's a reign. I mean, uh, I do it to you all the time through my preaching or one-on-one, or whatever. And it's a thing where you have to you have to write the vision. You cannot hold your kid accountable for not doing what's right if you haven't sat down and given him the vision of doing what's right. That's what parents do. They don't do anything with them, and then when they all get up, they want to yell, scream, complain, break the TV, kick the dog. That's what I did. And do all of the things that, uh, you know, because you're upset now. They angered you. And the bottom line is, You've never wrote the vision for them. They never saw it. I've had some parents go so far that they wrote it out in a sheet with everything. And every time they sat down, they went through it. That the kid, kids understood God's heritage, your family, not yours. 
Then the second thing he says, make it plain upon the tables. Now there's two things here. Uh, the first table we're going to talk about will be the table of their heart. The second table we'll talk about in a moment. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 talks about that the Word of God's already on the tables of our heart. You take that and then you build on it. Proverbs 7, 3, My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the table of thine heart. There's the table. Table of their heart. Now, moms and dads are great for setting the table for dinner. How about setting the table of their heart for ministry? I mean, some of you put on a great spread Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving and praise the Lord for it. What about the great spread on the table of their heart? I mean, you can cook all this great food. How about cooking up something with God to put on their heart? That's the key. That's why I take the time on Thursday night or whenever to answer a Bible question. A couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night, I was laying something out, and, you know, the little people typed things in, and this guy, I don't know who he was, maybe he hasn't been back on since, but he got on there and he said, you know, do you need to tell Bob that he needs to take shorter time answering these questions? <laughs> and then I was, I must have kept on going, and he, he wrote in there, the next one was, oh, oh, oh my, you know, like, you're still going on. Then he said, you know what, to speed things up, Bob needs to have people write these questions out and give them to him on Sunday so he can answer them on, on, on Thursday night, you know. And Vicki Tillman, everybody knows Vicki. She jumped in, I love Vicki. Don't mess with Vicki. Vicki Tillman jumped in and says, well, I'll do respect. We're glad that he takes the time because we're here to learn the Bible. He never come back on since. It's the wrong place to be, and you pick the wrong person to say it to but that's why I do it. I'm not in a hurry. I want you to understand every aspect. I will take every question you ask me, if it's talking about the Antichrist and how many warts he's got on the backside of his head, I don't care. I will find a way to bring it back around to give you something, to teach you something, to help you in life. And, you know, it's, it's just what we need to do. You need to do it as a parent. I need to do it as a, as a pastor. And then the second aspect will be the tables. will be on the tables of Thursday night. Putting up all those tables. Bible Institute, all the tables. People ministry, all the tables. Or in your case, it'll be your kitchen table. Maybe your dining room table. Or a table at a coffee shop where you take somebody you're discipling or you're trying to help. That's what he's talking about. Sitting down with somebody at a table. Not just the tables of their heart, but the table in your home. Laying out, helping them understand, taking the time to explain to them why your family is different than the other families. How important they are to the ministry. How they fit in. I, I tell my kids all the time, I could not do what I do without you. Because it's true. Then the third thing, that he may run that readeth it. Now, this running here will be our understanding the urgency of the hour and the time that we have. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with race the patience, uh, run with patience 
the race that is set before us. See, that's getting the things out of your world because you understand the urgency and you're in a race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23 through 27, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run a race, run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that you may obtain? And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body and, my, and bring it under subjection, lest uh, that by any means that which I have preached to others I should also be a castaway. He says there we're in a race. Where most people are in a race today for an incorruptible, a corruptible crown, we're in a race for an incorruptible but you know what he says? And this is so true of most of God's people. Most of God's people are running, but they're running with uncertainty. They don't know why they're running. They're just running. They're like Forrest Gump. They have no clue. And I want you to know, we're in a fight. He says right there, that, uh, so I therefore run as necessity, so fight. We're in a fight. But you know what? The people here are taking swings, but they're not hitting anything. They're beating the air. When you get the vision, when you get the burden, when you get this thing going, when you start running, you know why you're running. And brother, when you hit them, they know they've been hit. Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. A wasted Christian life. Went to church all your life. Did everything you were supposed to do. Tithe, sang in choir, did this and did that. You just never invested your life with your family first and then others. Then verse 3. For the vision is not yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall it shall. It will not lie, though it tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not tarry. Now, the first thing I want to say about this is when you're dealing with your family and with me as a pastor as the church, I know that there's a point in time that God is going to reveal himself to you. You do what you're supposed to do when you grow and you put those things in your life. There'll be some time when God will absolutely reveal himself to you and what you want to do. The model for that is in 1 Samuel chapter 3 with young Samuel. We've seen it many, many times. But there will come a time in any church when you do it right, God in time will reveal himself to your people as you grow. We've all went through it. Many of you went through it. I was there with you. And it'll be the same thing in your family. The, the day that you never look back again, the day that you're done with it, the day that you're not going back to the world, the day that nothing in the world can entice you anymore, the day that uh, it, uh, it, uh, it's all different for you. God now has, you've done what you needed to do. God has revealed himself to you and you're not going back. And it's the same thing in your family when you do what you need to do with your children. There'll come a point in their life. I'm not going to say they're going to be perfect. They're not. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to do dumb things. That's all part of life. But what I am telling you is this. They will come to the point where the world is no longer an option for them. And you know why they'll change? Because you changed and the world was no longer an option for you. 
Whatever you put your priorities in, church, the Word of God, Bible study on Thursday night, reading the Scriptures, doing this, doing that, is what they will do. Just that simple. Now he says in verse 3, but at the end it will come and not lie. God will, through a process, build any church and build, and build your family. It's just that simple. But it takes time. You know, it's a thing where you can't hurry it up. I never get in a hurry of where you're going. I just make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it right. My job is to make sure every time I stand in this pulpit, every time you come in to see me, every time I'm at the best game I got. I cannot afford to have a bad day in the pulpit, and you cannot afford to have a bad day as a parent with your children. You establish a rule, you establish a reign, and you follow through with it. And he says in verse 3 that, that at the end it will come. It will not lie. Trusting and, and, and what he's saying there, that there will times that you might have to go five, six, seven, eight years before God really comes through for you. I've had parents that saw their kids that were now eight or nine and they weren't saved yet thinking that they did something wrong. Why isn't my kid saved? You know what I always tell them? I said, you, you've done everything right. Just give it some time. And I'm going to tell you something. And this is true of pastoring and brother, it's true of parenting. There will be times as a pastor that all you have to hang on to are the principles of the Word of God that God gave you. And I want to tell you something else. As a parent, mom or dad, there'll be times with your kid that all you got to hang on to is the principles that God gave you. And when you know you've done what's right and you've done everything you need to do, then you just stay with it. When I started this church back, my family and I started this church back here 16, 17 years ago, it took me eight years just to get where I had my feet on the ground. And in that time, God brought the ones in that came in and we worked through some things and uh, we got growing and then others came in and it all, but it took eight solid years of just laying the groundwork and reinforcing it before I really expected anything. Most pastors can't do that. They, they come to the place where they're taught today, if you take a church, if you even last two or three years, then you move on to something else. Or you take a small church, it's like the musical chairs. You take a small church, and when the music stops, hope you get a bigger church. You don't do it that way. When you take a church, it's a life commitment. You take a church, it's what you need to do. And I say that saying this, I realize that there are some situations that are hopeless. And the best thing you can do is get out of it and go find a place where you can really grow and get what you need and then understand how it gets done. But it's that simple. Now, putting it all together, last week, we talked about building a baseline of absolutely truth. Me as a pastor to you, you as a mom and dad to your children. That will pay off at some point. This is the point. This is what he means when he says, wait for it. Don't get in a hurry. Be patient. They'll make some mistakes along the way. Look at that as a teaching opportunity to help them. Use the rod and the reproof, like we talked about last week, to keep it all on track uh, from your watch from a high tower. But at the end of the day, end of the day, end of the day, as a church and your family, you better get this in your head. All we have is each other. It's all we have. There's, we get in a jam, it's us. There's nobody out there in the world going to help us. If we ever get into a jam, God's been good to us up to this point, but someday it may all come and slam down on us. And you know what? The only thing that's going to hold us together is the book that we're putting in you right now. And with your family, there'll come a day when that family gets shaken. It'll come to a time when that family will try to get cracked. And the only thing that will hold it together 
is what you've done with the Word of God. I've seen families torn apart. Moms and dads won't follow through with anything. You know, Father Flanagan, there's a couple of old movies. They were made back in the 40s. You ought to, you ought to watch them. In fact, there are a couple of sequels. The first one is, is, is Boys Town. Was made. Spencer Tracy paid, played Father Flanagan. Father Flanagan was a Catholic priest who uh, saw all the orphans in in the town of Chicago, wherever it was, and he actually built, took them in. And it's a it's a heartwarming thing uh, because you know, and it shows how he started with just a little place with six or seven boys, and then at the end, he had a facility that housed thousands of kids. I mean, the idea was great. Too bad they all turned out Roman Catholic. But Father Franken had a motto, and I kind of agree with the motto. Now, he wasn't biblical in any way, shape, or form, but his motto was, when everybody asked him why he was doing what he was doing, he'd always say this, because I've learned and I believe that there's no such thing as a bad boy. Now, I don't totally agree with that because we all got old sin natures, but I do agree with it from the aspect that there are no bad boys, they're just bad parentings. Because you as a parent have everything at your disposal to make sure that kid turns out the way, right way. So in that sense, he was right. At our church, all we have is each other. The vision and the burden not only will give us direction, but when it, when it comes to push, comes to shove, it will be the only force that will hold us together. Simply bringing the principles of the Word of God and focusing on the vision and the burden that God has for us instead of focusing on the little squabbles and the little issues that everybody has. Simply God's burden because of our vision. And we run with it. I, I don't know a lot about track. I have two granddaughters that are great little track stars. And they run track. And I, and I go, as many of you do, to watch them. I, I'm, I'm confused. There's so much happening at the same time. <laughs> but my favorite, and I'm probably going to mess this up because I don't know that term. My favorite is when they run the long track and you got four or five people and they hand off the baton. What's that called? Is that a relay? That's a relay? See, I, it, it, how far is that? Ten miles? I, I don't know. Huh? Different okay, different length. Well, that helps me a lot. Well, the one I was watching was 60 miles. <clears throat> but I'm there watching it. And neither one of my kids run that relay, I don't think. Uh, uh, Maddie runs the long-distance thing, and, 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 uh, and uh, Maddie, or Kinsey, uh, she does everything. Uh, she jumps, jumps whenever she does. It's incredible. Stuff. <laughs> They're good at it. They're really good at it. But I'm sitting there and watching that. And, you know, here you got these guys in lanes. They all have a baton. And then around the other side, about halfway, there's, there's another same number of guys. And then over here and over here. The gun cracks. These guys run off. And I, I go around there, and they're running for everything that they got. And I guess there's a strategy to that. I guess you put your, your fastest guy in the, in the, at the end, I would think. I don't know. I, my strategy was I'd just shoot the guys on either side of me and I'd be having a great day. But anyway, shoot him in the leg. Don't kill him. Just shoot him in the leg. And then, anyway, so I'm watching him and he's running out there and he's got this thing and the kid is watching him come around 
and the kid starts running, not real fast, but he's running, and he's looking behind, holding his hand out. This guy is holding it out. He picks up the baton, and he takes off. And when he gets that baton, he hits afterburners, man. He's gone. And he comes around, and then as he's coming around the other side, the next guy sees him coming. He starts to move out and get his hand back. He slaps that baton in it, and off he goes. And then the other guy comes back for the home stretch. And I'll tell you what, they give the fastest guy to that, and he slaps that thing in his hand, and with everything he's got, he's running for the finish line. And I watched that in the thing, and I said, that's exactly what Christianity ought to be. All down through history, we have been handed the baton from, future, from past generations. And we need to, we're the last one. We're the anchor. We're the last generation, if you know anything about Matthew, before the Lord comes back. We're the last generation. And the baton has been handed to us. And we need to run with everything in our power. We need to run as hard as we can. And your family, it's nothing more than you taking the baton that you got here, passing it to your children, that they pass it on to their grandchildren, that it gets passed on through generations until Jesus comes back. And in that handoff of biblical principles, you reinforce the burden and the vision because that's the only way it's going to get done. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, Again, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you so much. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for these good people. I thank you for so many of them that have made up their mind, the singles, Lord, that came out of dysfunctional homes, came out of places where they shouldn't even be here. By the grace of God, you brought them here, and they made that choice that they're going to break that cycle. And I have no doubts in my heart or my mind that when they marry and have kids, it'll be done the right way because they have allowed you to speak to them, reprove them, and change them. And Lord, I thank you for the young couples that have, have the young little babies that are all through this church and the young kids that you, Lord, I know that they're going to they're gonna command their house. They're going to do what's right. And I thank you for the parents that have kids that are older now and they're teens and, and uh, Lord, how that they have established a rule of reign and righteousness that they have taken the position that it's God's way or the highway, that there's no negotiation. There are some things that we will not negotiate because this is God's house, and we, with you or without you, are going to establish that heritage. And we'll thank you and praise you for all you do. Help me to always be here to give these good, dear folks what they need. Help them to be better in my approach, better in my understanding, better in my explanations. Help me to be more patient. Help me to be uh, there, Lord, and more in tune with where they're at that I, too, can give them the greatest opportunity as a church to run this race in these last days. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen.